Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. I've entitled the morning's message, Heaven. Let me begin with this question. It's a serious question. Who wants to go to heaven? Let me rephrase that. Who wants to go to heaven before 3.30 this afternoon? (laughs) You had to think about that, didn't you? Uh, uh, There's a couple of hesitations out there. I saw them. For those of you watching live stream who live outside the state of Wisconsin, the Packers play the Cowboys at 3.30 this afternoon. Now, Now you know. Isaiah chapter 6, as we make our way through the Bible, we are in a place that's dated for us in verse 1. It was the year that Uzziah died. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, two covered his face, and with two covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the doors were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. And also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, Send me. So we have Isaiah volunteering and saying he'll take the message that the Lord has given to him. I'm just going to read a little paragraph from Dave Hunt's book called Whatever Happened to Heaven. It's only a paragraph, but really sets the tone where a lot of people are at today when it comes to the subject of heaven. As the title also implies, something has happened to adversely affect the way heaven is viewed, with grave consequences for the church and the world. What has happened and why? And what is the growing dilemma that now confronts so many in the church? In attempting to answer such questions, it will be necessary to begin with a serious consideration of death, a most important but uncomfortable subject. That leads, of course, to the unique claim of Christianity that Christ, through his death for our sins and resurrection, has conquered death and offers eternal life to all who come to him in repentance and faith. What Jesus has to say about this present life and the life to come, and the particular promise he made concerning heaven, gave the early church a hope unknown to the followers of any other religion. That hope, while still retained in theology, is so unreal to the average Christian of today that it has lost its transforming power. And then he says, heaven remains the place that everybody hopes to reach someday, of which almost no one wants to be taken out right now. What is wrong, if anything, with such an attitude? And what are the consequences? Here we have the crux of an issue that many people are not yet aware of, has even been raised. But such will be the most important concerning the church in the immediate future. Paul told Timothy, Timothy, you're just a a soldier. And so as a soldier of Christ, I want you to touch the things of this world really lightly because this is not what it's all about. We're just passing through. So this morning, Isaiah was shown heaven, the very throne, the center of what the universe will be, will be the throne of God. And there's really only a handful of places in the Bible that actually describe and talk about heaven and the Father sitting on the throne. This morning, I would like to look at some of the references that speak of the throne of God and heaven. And even before we can get into it, I have to tell you that there's three heavens because Paul talks about being taken to the third heaven. That means there's two other references to heaven that are different. So the first heaven 
that we talk about in general terms is the atmosphere and, you know, the clouds and the, the area where birds fly in. We, we call it the heavens. And then going past that, past the atmosphere, we enter into uh, the universe at large with the sun and the moon and the stars. That's referred to as the heavens. You look up at the stars at night and you say, well, I'm looking up into the, into the heavens. And they keep changing how big it is. Uh, I think the latest was somewhere between 18 and 20 billion light years apart. And what's interesting to me about that is the scripture says that God has to humble himself to look into his universe. Isaiah 40.12 says he measures the universe with a span. In other words, when God measures the universe, he measures it with the span of his hand. He's that big. How big is the universe as far as God is concerned? It's that big. How big is our God? Well, it's awful big if he measures the universe with the span of his hand. So that brings us to 2 Corinthians 12, but we'll get there eventually, where Paul says he was taken and caught up to the third heaven. The third heaven is what we have in view here this morning in Isaiah chapter 6. What Isaiah is able to see is into the spiritual realm. It is more real than this realm that we live in. It's eternal. Um, God has always been, and he will always be. And there are various places in the Old Testament, several in the New, that do give us a glimpse of the throne room. And the first one I'd like to look at this morning is in 1 Kings chapter 22, so let's turn back there. I'll give you a little background as you're turning. The background is a prophecy about Ahab's death, and uh, that goes back even to chapter 21, that eventually he's going to die. Chapter 22 is a promise of victory of false prophets. Now, what was happening was the king of Israel and the king of Judah were having a meeting and they were trying to decide whether they should go to battle um, against their enemy. And they had, in verse so five, they're talking about it. And um, we read that Jehoshaphat said in verse five to the king of Israel, please inquire for the word of the Lord today. And the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, 400 of them. He got 400 prophets. And they said, shall I go up against Ramoth Gilead to fight, or shall I refrain? And they said, go for it, for the Lord will deliver it into the hands of the king. And Jehoshaphat isn't buying it because he knows that these guys are only telling the king what he wants to hear. And here's 400, and Jehoshaphat said, isn't there still a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? Now, what's implied here is these are all false prophets. And they said, oh yeah, there is. There's this one guy, in verse eight, his name is Micaiah, the son of Amiah of whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he doesn't prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, don't let the king say such things. And then the king of Israel called an officer and said, bring Micaiah, the son of Amiah, quickly. And so he comes, he tells them exactly what they're gonna be in for. But one of the things I wanna point out here is biblical Christianity and standing upon the word of God like Micaiah, you will always be in minority. The majority, uh, the Bible says, are filled with pulpits and churches with people being told what they want to hear. The Bible actually says in the last days there will be teachers and having itching ears. And that's the whole idea is for me to tell you something pleasant and that everything is going to be fine, and, and uh, you're not going to have any problems. In other words, telling you things you want to hear instead of what you need to hear. Somebody want to say amen to that? That's the times in which we live. Nothing's new. Nothing's new under the sun. 400 to 1. Isn't there anybody around? 
Somebody that can just stand up and just speak the word of the Lord. And so they picked Micaiah. And so in verse 19, let's pick it up there. Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You want to hear what the Lord has to say? Hear it. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne in the host of heaven, standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramath-Gilead? Now this is interesting. Um, So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in another manner. They're actually discussing. Micaiah said, I I heard uh, the father say, um, what do you think? What should we do? So one spoke in one manner and then Verse 21, a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I'll persuade him. And he said, well, how are you going to do that? What's your plan? He said, well, I'll go out and I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And so you have the 400 prophets that told the king exactly what he wanted to hear. And um, we have the first place in the scriptures here We know that Solomon saw the Lord twice, but he really doesn't give description. Micaiah here actually said he's sitting on his throne, and um, the heavenly host is on his right hand and his left. And so thus we have the first encounter in the scriptures of somebody besides Isaiah seeing the Lord in heaven. Let's go to... Daniel chapter 7, of course the book of Daniel from chapter 2 on is filled with dreams and of Nebuchadnezzar and, um, and dreams that Daniel had. In chapter 7, it is dated for us. It says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now Belshazzar would have been the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And so it's in this time frame under Belshazzar, we read that Daniel had a dream and visions, plural, on his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. So here the date is 552 B.C. And um, what he dreams, I'm going to pick it up in verse 7. He sees basically... What he saw in chapter 2, I didn't do this in the first service, but I got a little bit more time in the second. So 2 and 7 are identical in their interpretation. 2, we have a vision of a statue made out of a head of gold, breasts of silver, iron, and then feet of, of clay, and so on and so forth. Now, the idioms change in chapter 7 from a statue two, four great creatures. Um, They all mean the same thing. We have kingdoms, the Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persia kingdom, Alexander the Great in the Grecian kingdom, the Roman kingdom, 2,000 years ago, was the last one that was a world-dominating empire. And then we have one that is yet coming in our time, and that's where I'm going to pick it up because uh, the first couple ones are the four beasts. But verse 7 After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth that was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with his feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had had ten horns. Well, now we know, because Revelation talks about this future kingdom that the Antichrist will rule over, And we find here, I was considering the horns in verse 8, and there came up another little horn. This is a reference to the Antichrist. Coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. A good description of the Antichrist, because he'll be pompous, He will make a peace treaty, according to Daniel 9, 27, with Israel for seven years. He will break it three and a half years into that period of time. So verses 7 and 8. In this dream, Daniel is actually seeing um, the little horn, the Antichrist, him speaking, 
pompously, proudly, arrogantly. And then between verses 8 and 9, we have the end of the tribulation period. And uh, we have verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was pure. His throne was a fiery flame, his wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousand ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books, plural, were opened. And what we have here, and um, I've read several commentaries on this, and there's two different trains of thought. I'll give you both of them, and I won't be dogmatic on either one of them. This is a picture of Revelation 4 and 5, according to some commentators. Others um, see this because of... um, the court seated and books plural being opened as the great white throne judgment. Um, Because of what's going to happen in verse 13, it can go either way. So it's either uh, chapters 4 and 5, which we're going to get to a little bit later, where Jesus takes the... uh, um, basically the title of the planet Earth out of the Father's hands, and or it's the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. Actually, my cross-reference here, that's what it says, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. But whatever view you take, both could be right. Verse 11, I watched them because the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking, and I watched till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. We're actually going to be reading this literally happen a little bit later in the study. He sees the Antichrist get thrown into the lake of fire. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now verse 13. I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the ancient days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, the one which will not be destroyed. In contrast to what? All these other kingdoms that have come and gone. Babylon's no longer, Medo-Persians no longer. Grecians no longer, Roman no longer, and the last one with the Antichrist will also be destroyed. Let me point out something here that I know I've been guilty of saying, but in the context, when we read in verse 9, the Ancient of Days, the one who is sitting on the throne, is none other than God the Father. How do I know? Because in verse 13, Jesus clearly comes to the Ancient of Days. We have the Trinity here. We have a picture of the Father on the throne, the Ancient of Days, and then we have a picture of Jesus Christ coming before him, and what happens? Well, he's given the kingdom to rule and reign over. This fulfills Psalm 110, verse 1, where the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies thy footstool. And then what? And then I'm going to give you the kingdom. And it will endure and last forever and ever and ever. So Daniel, um, here, gives us a picture, more detail, of uh, the order of events with the Antichrist during the tribulation period on into Revelations 4 and 5. Let's jump into the New Testament, and let's look at Acts chapter 7. I'm looking forward to meeting Stephen, or Stephen, however you want to pronounce his name. I like Stephen. Of course, he's the first martyr. And um, let me just give you a little bit of a background on how much they hated this guy. In chapter 6, 
he was just, you know, he was just one of the servants. He was one of the guys that waited on, on tables, but he also had the gift of being an evangelist. And he was always getting people upset because he was always witnessing to people about Jesus. So much so that they wanted to get rid of him. And so they began lying about him. In chapter 6, verse 13, it says, they set up false witnesses. And they said, this man doesn't cease to speak. We can't shut him up. Words against the holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and he's going to change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat at the council looked steadfast at him. So they drug him in the court. And they said, they had these people come up and tell lies about Stephen. And, um, and they looked at him and they saw his face as the face of an angel. Oh, I would have loved to have seen that. You know, they're railing and railing and ranting on him. And here's Stephen. He's just that light bulb, just looking right out at these guys. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest says to Stephen, so what do you have to say? Are these things so? Is it true? And what he launches into <laughs> is what you don't do to a Stephen is give him center stage and, uh, because he goes for it. Chapter 7 of the book of Acts is probably the most comprehensive condensing of the Old Testament that you could possibly put together. He gives an overview of the Old Testament with starting with Abraham and his point all the way through the way is all the places that foretold Jesus coming. And so all of this chapter, all the way up to verse 51, he stops his Bible study. Talk about not being seeker sensitive. Uh, this is what he says to those that he's witnessing to. You, I pre said, what do you have to say? Wrong thing to ask Stephen <laughs> or Stephen because he goes for it. And then... Instead of being seeker-sensitive, he says in verse 51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Good question. And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom now you have become betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels, and you guys haven't kept it. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. I mean, they were, they were just exploding. They wanted, they wanted at Stephen. But he, this is Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed uh, into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens open and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And that was all they could handle. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears. In other words, they plugged up their ears and and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Here's Paul taking all this in. He consented to this, and believe me, it haunted him the rest of his life because he was a part of this killing. And they stoned Stephen, and as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And we have Stephen here, and what's unique about what's happening here is he is the first Christian martyr. But it is the only time that I'm aware of in Scripture where we read about the Father and the Son. He's always sitting, right, at the right hand of the Father, but not here. He's standing. Well, what's he standing for? I think it's a word of encouragement to Stephen. He was impressed with the Bible study, I'm sure. And um, he got up and he allowed Stephen to see what was going to happen next. And he was able to, well, he's like these um, 
Christians that were asked if they were Christians before they were killed. The guy wanted to, to know, who are the Christians here? Stand up. Who wants to go meet your God? And they actually did. And that's exactly what's happened to Stephen. And here we have Jesus standing up almost as if saying, come on, come on home, Stephen. You've done your job and you've done it well. And he's standing and he's not sitting. And it's the only place in scripture I'm aware of. But here's another example of being able to look past the physical into the eternal realm and we see the throne of God and the Father and the Son. And again, a picture we have of the Trinity. Remember what Isaiah was told? The question was, who's going to go for us? Plural. We have the Father and the Son. Who's going to go for us? I will. Isaiah said, I'll do it. I'll go. Let's look at the next one, which is Second um, Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 12. And let me give a little background here because Paul is for, forced to boast a little bit because he's speaking with the authority of an apostle. In chapter 11, it says Paul's declaration of his apostleship. And he had to present his credentials so that he would have some, some authority that he would be able to minister to them with the authority of an apostle. But here's, here's his badge of honor of uh, some of the things that he is um, actually bragging about, actually. Verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast of the things which concern my infirmity. What were his infirmities? Well, it tells us in 23, I've labored more abundantly in stripes above measure. I've been in prison more frequently. Death, close to death often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and night I was in the, in the water. In journeys often in perils of, in water, in perils of robber, in perils of my countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the wilderness, in perils of false brethren. I'm weary and in toil, sleepless nights often, hungry and thirsty, fasting often, cold, nakedness. And besides all these things, what comes upon me daily, my daily concern for all the churches. He carried this burden that the church would be encouraged and that they wouldn't um, uh, turn back or give up, but be like a Stephen. And so he says, if I have to boast, then I'm just going to boast about my infirmities. But when it gets down to chapter 12, he says, okay, I've told you all the bad things that have happened to me. Let me tell you about one of the unbelievable things that happened to me. Let's come to verse 1, dreams and visions. He says in verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, or whether out of the body, I don't know. God knows. But such a one was caught up to the third heaven. That's why I talked about the other two heavens. And I know such a man, whether in or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Who was caught up into paradise, to heaven. And he heard inexpressible words which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I'm not going to be a fool. I'm just going to speak the truth. But I, but I forbear lest anyone should think me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Now, when Isaiah saw the Lord in Isaiah 6, what happened to him? All of a sudden he became painfully aware of something. When he saw the holiness of God, he realized his own depravity. He goes, oh no, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I've said things that are not right. And worse, I live with people that have the same problem that I do. I'm done for. That's when the angel came and purged and the sin was taken away that he could stand in God's presence. He was immediately aware and made humble because he was in the presence of God. 
Now, Paul is boasting here. He comes right out and says he is. And he says, I've been to heaven, and I've heard things that I can't even begin to try to tell you what I heard because there's no way to put it into to human terms. There's no words for it. And verse 7, and unless I would have too big of a head or get exalted above measure, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. It was a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I would be exalted above measure. And concerning this trial, I didn't like it. I asked the Lord three times that it would depart from me. And finally, the Lord says no. In verse 9, he said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Okay, if that's what the way you want it, Lord, therefore, most gladly, I'm going to boast now in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. Boy, you want to remember that one next time you go through a trial or you get sick or you're having a bad day. I mean, think of your worst day and then just think of what I read about an average day in this guy's life. And then he's got, he's got this demon that's buffeting him. Well, what does that mean? I don't know. I know he didn't like it. I know he wanted it gone. And the Lord says, no, I'm going to let it be there. It'll keep you humble, Paul. You need, you need to be kept usable. I've watched pride wipe out too many guys in ministry. Uh, the Lord proper, prospers them, and they become somebody else from when they first began. And it's sad to see that happen. So there was a safety mechanism that the Lord worked into Paul's life, and he allowed this thorn in the flesh. I don't know what it is. People have different ideas. But I'm just going to take it for what it said, a messenger of Satan, to hassle him. Therefore, I take pleasures and infirmities and needs and persecutions and distress for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And the Lord continued to use Paul, even to the point when he's going up to Jerusalem. And um, some prophet comes up to him and takes his belt and wraps his hand up. And he says, this is what's going to happen to the man who goes up to Jerusalem looking right at Paul. And he goes, guys, why are you breaking my heart? Don't do that. He said, I'm ready to die for the Lord. So, so, don't, so don't do that. And he was, he was sold out. And um, matter of fact, he's the one that said, oh, death, where's your sting? Come on, bring it on. Oh, death, where's, where's your victory? He said, I'd, I'd rather be in heaven than here. But he says, it's necessary for your sake that I be here so that I can exercise the role of being an apostle and edify and build up the church. Um, But if he had his choice, he said, I'd rather go home. And so these chapters here, Paul went to heaven, saw heaven, and it's not what, it's interesting here, he doesn't tell us what he saw, but only what he heard. Now, I don't think anybody could ever describe it anyway. How do I know? Because of 1 Corinthians 2.9. Well, what does that say? I'm glad you asked that question this morning, because now I can tell you. Eyes have not seen, ear hath not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared them that love him. In other words, there's no way. We are finite in our thinking. And Paul says, I saw the infinite. And there's simply um, no eye or ear or brain that can wrap your head around what heaven is really like. But the good news is 1 Corinthians 13 says, now we see through, what, a glass darkly. But someday, someday, oh Lord, someday face to face, and we will know as we're known. And here's an example, and I, I have one more, but here's Paul taken to heaven, and I'd say, I'd, I'd tell you, I'd try it, but there's no words, it's not lawful for a man to utter. Revelation chapter four, all the disciples were martyred, except John. And Fox's book of martyrs Stephen is the first one mentioned when you get the book and read it. And then you eventually get to John, 
It talks about how James died. And Thomas, I think he died in India. And John said, that, uh, Fox's book of Martyr tells us they tried to kill John in Ephesus. They tried to boil him in oil, and John refused to die. He wouldn't cook. And so they placed him on an island that's called Patmos. It's a penal colony, prison. And um, as I've been there. It's absolutely beautiful. It's just off the shore of Turkey, a couple hours out. And it was there that the Lord appeared to him and gave him the book of Revelation. It's divided into three sections. The key verse is chapter 1, verse 19. John, write the things that you have seen, chapter 1. Write the things that are present tense, chapters 2 and 3. Well, he was alive. Seven letters to seven churches. That's the middle. And then he said, write the things that are after. After what? Write the things that are after the church age. So... What you have in chapters 1, 2, and 3, if you have a red-letter Bible, you see a lot of red ink. But as soon as you get to chapter 4, we have the Greek word metatonter, after these things, after what things? Well, if you're going to use the key to the book, Revelation 119, the things after the church age. No more red letters here. They're all black. From here till the time you get to the end of the book of Revelation. But verse 1 says, now John's going to see the throne room that Isaiah saw. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me, saying, come up here, and I will show you the things that must take place after this. After what? After the church age. Immediately I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And it was a rainbow around the throne, and the appearance like an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their head. And from the throne, I wish I could, I actually went online to see if anybody tried to actually dramatize the verse 5 here. And from the throne proceeded lightning, thunders, and voices. And I couldn't find anything. I, just to read it, I can't put it in, with the intensity that's in this verse. Voices, thunders, lightning, all going on at the same time that the seraphim are flying around and the father is sitting on the throne, we have this action going on, this voices and thunders and this lightning, an incredible scene. And from the throne proceeded these uh, lightnings and voices. And then there were the seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, And in the midst of the living creatures, full of eyes front and in back. Now, in Isaiah, he identifies them, remember, as seraphim. What are seraphim? They're the highest order of an angel. Here, uh, the Greek is zoa, and it can be translated living creatures. But because of Isaiah, we know that they're angels, and there's... um, here we're told something that Isaiah, that Isaiah didn't mention. Four living creatures, and they are, they're full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like a calf. The third was like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes round and within. Now Isaiah tells us, Two of them covered their face, two of the wings covered their feet, and with two they flew. John doesn't tell us that. But they both agree on this, and they did not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and lives forever and ever, Then the 24 elders would fall down before him who sits on the throne 
and they worshipped him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and power and honor, for you created all things, and by your will they exist, and for your will they were created. So chapter 4, we have John taken up in the heaven, and he sees what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. And he adds detail. Now, when we get to chapter 5, again, we have a picture of the Trinity in view because it gives us information that the one sitting on the throne, verse 1, in his right hand, on the one who sat on the throne, there was a scroll written on the back, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open this scroll and to loose its seals? And there was a pause, and no one stepped up. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, interesting, was able to open the scroll or even to look on it. And it began to sink in to John. Oh, no. I wept. So he says, I wept much. Well, why would he be weeping? He's weeping because when Adam and Eve sinned, they forfeited what was given to them over to Lucifer. How do I know that? Jesus didn't deny the temptation when he says, if you'll get down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms because I have the authority over them. Jesus didn't dispute that. He just said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. He's called the God of this world for a reason. So what's in the Father's hands? It's the title deed to this planet. And nobody can redeem it. And the thought that hit John like a freight train was, you mean to tell me that we have to live and it's never going to be the way it was? And he, he broke down. The thought of Satan continuing to be in charge was just too much because no one was found worthy to open or read the scroll or even to look on it. Verse 5, it's looking up. But one of the elders said to me, don't weep, John. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the seal and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Of course, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he came, and I hope we get to see this someday, and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they began to sing a new song. And we don't know the tune, but we know the words. So we can practice on the words here. It says, you are worthy. All, all the Christians are raptured, and now they're in heaven, and they're about to sing a song. And it goes something like this. Lord, you're worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain. And you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, And you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Just want to point out two things. This can only be the church. Where are they? Number two, they are in heaven. And they're watching Jesus take the scroll out of the Father's hand that nobody else can take. And so they begin this praise song. And um, they're the only ones who can sing it. Well, there's other people that are praising here, but they're not saved Christians. Here, they're talking about redemption. You have redeemed us. But in verse 11, there's other voices around the throne. And these are not the saved church. These are angels, many angels around the throne. 
and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them, just like in Daniel, was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands. In other words, millions and millions of angels. They also uh, sang with a loud voice. They're not singing, but they're making a declaration. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. See, there's nothing about redemption here. So we have, in chapter 5, we have the church in heaven, clearly. We also have angels in heaven. And we have more of a description in these two chapters, probably more than anywhere else that we've read so far this morning. Well, the first thing that happens then in chapter 6 as we lay as we lay this out, is the chronology from from here for the rest of the book, and it goes something like this: Here's the order of the events. Number one, the rapture takes place. Chapter four. Now you don't have any red letters. The church is in heaven, clearly. Number two, in chapter five, we have the church in heaven. In chapters six through eighteen, we have the Lamb, Jesus, opening the first seal, which happens to be the Antichrist, which lines up with exactly what Paul taught in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Before the tribulation can come, the day of the Lord, the Antichrist has to show up on a scene. So what do we have? That's the first thing that happens. The first scroll is open. The rider on the white horse is, is the Antichrist. So then you have... The seven years from 6 to 18, we're not going to go through that, but it's a seven-year period of time. Daniel 9, verse 27, refers to the Antichrist making a seven-year agreement with Israel. He breaks it three and a half years in, and, um, but it is a seven-year period of time, and that's exactly the amount of time between chapter 6 and 18, Chapter 19 is a second coming of Jesus Christ. And it says that they, verse 15, when he comes, John said he saw heaven open in verse 11, and, a, and then there was a rider on a white horse, not the one from Revelation 6.1. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and he judges and makes war. Verse 16, and on his robe is written a a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And in chapter 19, he comes at the Battle of Armageddon and destroys the kings of the earth. And remember back in Daniel 7, it talks about the little horn and what happened to him? Here we read it again. Verse 20 says of 19, And the beast, the little horn, was captured. And with him the false prophet who worked signs and is present, which deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire. Well, that's exactly what Daniel said. Here's here's 40 authors. Here's the Bible. 40 authors over 1,500 years of time, each writing in different time frames, and they got the connections. It's like a scarlet thread consistent all the way through. And that's because it wasn't written by man, but all scripture is what? Given by inspiration of God, all scripture. So um, we have the second coming. And then in chapter 20, we read in verse two that the devil will be bound for a thousand years. That's why we know that um, in verse five, it says, and when the thousand years is finished, um, he will allow him to be set free again for a little period of time. So I would say chapter 20 is the millennial reign where Jesus Christ reigns and rules for 1,000 years. We call it the millennium. And we read back in chapter 5 that the church is saying, you've made us kings and priests, and we're going to reign on the earth with you. And that's what chapter 20 is all about. And as we get into eternity now, we only have two chapters in the entire Bible 
that talks about what happens after that thousand-year period of time. So, um, this is what we would, some would call heaven. It's called the New Jerusalem. Um, let's just read verse 21 to show you the change that takes place after the thousand years. 21, verse 1, John said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and there was no more sea. So we have a whole new world that doesn't have any oceans. Our world absolutely cannot survive without our oceans. And the whole need for water being regenerated with the, the cycle, of, uh, but not during this time when the curse is removed and there's a new heaven and a new earth. And what John sees next is the new Jerusalem. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he's going to dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. And they shall no more be pain, for the former things have passed away. And then he who sat on the throne, see, the throne room again, said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. I've got to stop here and just emphasize this. These words are true and faithful. The city we're talking about is true and faithful. Most of Christianity does not take a literal view of the book of Revelation. They allegorize it. They spiritualize it. They say it's really just a battle between good and bad or light and darkness. Why then would the Lord say, write this down, because these things are true and they are faithful? This is a good place for an amen, by the way. You can do better. That's better. I like that one better. These things are faithful and true. My prayer for this study this morning about heaven is that heaven becomes a reality, such a reality that you can't wait to get there. And when you get a little taste of what is being shown to us here, you get, are you, are you kidding me? This is what it's going to be like? And John's trying to describe it. The father says, oh, it's done. I'm Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. And he who overcomes is going to inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. What is an overcomer? It's as simple as this, gang. Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. Don't look back. When you gave your life to Jesus, we've got to be like Paul, forgetting those things that are behind. It is straightforward. He says, any man looking back after setting the course isn't fit for the kingdom of heaven. So what does it mean? He, he who's an overcomer, just don't go back to your old ways. Keep the faith. Keep believing what you believe from the day that you accepted Jesus as your Savior. And don't change your mind. And don't let anybody change your mind or let it be undermined. Because according to the parable of the sower, that's what the devil seeks to do, to take that seed out of your heart lest you would believe and be saved. So there's a real war going on to get you to go back to your old ways. And the Lord is saying, don't do it. Just hang in there. Finish the course. We're almost home. All who overcome will inherit all these things. Now, I'm not going to read verses 9 through 27, but I'm going to summarize it, what, what John is saying here. He tries to describe the new Jerusalem. And the song what we sang earlier, when we all get to heaven, it's a, it, one of the lines says they're, they're going to open the pearly gates. Well, the fact of the matter is they were never closed, ever. They're always open. And that's what we, we read in, uh, here, that the gates will not be shut. They are made of pearls. Verse 21, and 12 gates were 12 pearls. 
and the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. And we're told in verse 16 the dimensions and how big the city is. It says the city was, uh, verse 16, laid out as a square, and the length is as great as its breadth, and the breadth of the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs, its length, its breadth, and its height are 12,000 furlongs. Well, how big is that? Let me put something up on the screen that J. Vernon McGee came up with. It's basically 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles tall. And inside of that, there's 12 different layers of foundations that are made up of precious stones that are mentioned in verse 19. I'll just mention a couple of them. Sapphire, um, emeralds, sardis, um, beryl, chrysolite, um, amethyst, and so on. Every level is a different precious um, metal that makes up the city. This is what McGee says about um, the structure. He says, the stone is transparent and gleaming, which suggests one of these stones, most likely the diamond. The diamond seems to fit the description better than any other stone known to man. The similarity of the Hebrew word for crystal in Ezekiel one twenty two to the Hebrew word for ice helps us to strengthen this view. The New Jerusalem is a diamond in a gold mounting. The city is the engagement ring of the bride. In fact, it is the wedding ring. It is the symbol of the betrothal and the wedding of the church of Christ. And what you have up on the screen here is if it's a cube and it's coming down out of heaven and stops somewhere before it gets to the new earth, what we have in view is something that we'd never have before because either with those dimensions, it's either a cube or a pyramid. And McGee had a problem with that. And so he contacts a couple of mathematicians and he asks them to figure out, he wants to know what would it take what would the circumference need to be to enclose a cube that is 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles? And I quote him. He says, this involves mathematics, which I couldn't figure out. I ask a mathematician and an engineer involved with the space program to determine what the circumference of the sphere would be. They both came up with the same answer. To enclose a cube measuring 1,500 miles on each side the circumference of the spear would be about 8,164 miles. The diameter of the moon is 2,160 miles, and that of the New Jerusalem spear is about 2,600 miles. Thus, the New Jerusalem will be somewhat larger than the moon, and it will be a spear like all the other heavenly objects I personally believe that this is the picture that is given to us here. So basically what he's saying is that the city that's made out of pure gold, that would be the the setting, he sees it encapsulized, which makes sense to me. Instead of having a cube out in space, you actually have it covered with um, a diamond. And um, I believe it, it becomes the center of the universe and to try to even begin to describe the, the beauty of this place is impossible. But, but look at verse um, 22. In the center of it, I saw no temple for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are in it. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light. Okay. Gals, your husband gave you a diamond ring. In order for it to show its beauty, what has to happen? Well, light comes in, refracts off of it, and it gives off this brilliant color, right? Well, now it's in, it's, this one's inside out. You see, the light is coming from the inside 
and going out, reflecting off the gold, reflecting off these 12 different layers of sapphires and sardis and amethysts. And then the last thing it flashes out of is this diamond, and you have something that is so far beyond trying to describe. But here's the good news. It's your home. This is where you're going to live and have access to come and go. I believe the earth will orbit around the new Jerusalem. And um, when he says he makes a new heaven and a new earth, well, the earth is still going to be here. And we have access to it. Remember the promise in the Old Testament? And this kingdom will be a kingdom that didn't say for a thousand years, did it? It said forever and ever and ever. So forever and ever and ever, we're going to have a home that he said he, he says, I'm going to leave and I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. This is what he's talking about. And we'll have access to it. I believe with our resurrected bodies, it'll be no problem at all getting back and forth from planet Earth. Or who, who knows the things that the Lord has prepared for us. All right. Let's look at um, just the first five verses. And everybody has a favorite verse in the Bible. I'm always kidding, and I'm saying, this is my favorite verse in the Bible. Well, this really is my favorite verse in the Bible. Revelation 22, John saw a pure river of water, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God. Now, this is in the new city. And in the middle of the street and on either side of the river was a tree of life, was the tree of life, not mentioned since Genesis, which bore 12 fruits. Each tree yielded its fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. There will be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants are going to serve him. And here it is, verse 4. They shall see his face. We're talking about the face of the ancient of days that is mentioned back in Isaiah. To think that the creator of the universe, the ones that the seraphim can do only say holy, 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 that our heavenly father actually has a face and that I'm going to look at it someday and I'm going to see him, that's the most remarkable statement in the Bible. They is a reference to us are actually going to see the face of our Heavenly Father. Wow. And his name will be written on their forehead. There will be no night there, no need for the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Church, do you have a glorious future, or what? So what are we supposed to do with a Bible study like this on heaven? Well, Peter actually tells us, and we're going to close this morning by looking at Second Peter chapter 3 talking about this very thing. Francis Schaeffer is best known for his book, How Should We Then Live? Dave Hunt asked the question, whatever happened to heaven? If we really believe there's a heaven, and it's our, our eternal home, and because of the parables that Jesus talked about, he talks about rewards being given and positions being given in this kingdom And they were contingent upon our faithfulness with the gifts that were given to us. And to one he gave five, and the Lord came back and he said, well, what did you do with the five? He says, well, I turned it into ten. He said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That's what this all is. So this is how we end the study this morning. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. That's rapture's next and then the day of the Lord and then he says in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise elements will melt with a fervent heat and both the earth and the works that are in it are going to be burned up therefore therefore what therefore everything that we think is so important now is going to be burned up therefore since all these things will be dissolved what manner of people ought we to be in all holy conduct and godliness doing what looking for and hastening his coming. Lord Jesus, come soon. Amen? Lord Jesus, come soon. Looking forward to that. And hastening the coming the day of God because of which the heavens will 
The dissolved being on fire and elements will melt with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, we're looking forward to this new heaven and this new earth in which dwells righteousness. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found blameless by him in peace without spot and blameless. Paul went through some tough times. In closing, you might be going through some tough times, but not anywhere compared to what Paul went through. And this is as bad as it's ever going to get. And as I read the end of the book, I like it a lot. And that's, he prepared that place for me. And he says, oh, by the way, write this down. Everything that we just said is faithful and true, and there's not a force in the universe that can stop this from happening. Amen? I stay on and close the word of prayer. Lord, thank you for our study on heaven this morning. And uh, we admit, Lord, eyes haven't seen, ears haven't heard. I, you tell us straight out, we won't be able to comprehend it until we're actually there. But we thank you for the Bible that lays it out so clearly and it creates in us this blessed hope, Lord, that we really do want to go to heaven. But more importantly, we really want to see you. In Jesus' name, amen.